Welcome to the DEI Discussions podcast series. We are here today to celebrate the wins, raise awareness of the challenges and walk the talk for change across the entire financial technology industry. This is a chapter special called Artificial Discrimination. Can AI be trusted with inclusion? And today we are joined by A.M. Bat, founder and CEO of DAE. He is here to share how he walks the talk for inclusion in our sector and what more he wants done. So, A.M., welcome. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for the invite and uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation. Let's talk a little sure. bit more about DAE and just tell me about the mission so that everyone knows exactly what it is that you're trying to do with it. Yeah, I engage with a lot of things in, in, in what might appear non-traditional ways and not to be kind of cutesy and kind of non-traditional for its own sake. But I spent a lot of time in the corporate side. Most of my life was on the corporate side, for-profit business, a lot of advisory work. Admission doesn't quite hang for me as a way to think about an organization, but I'll give you an answer that, that, that you know, fit into the mission thing. The three commitments we hold that, that kind of weave the place together. The first is humane technologists. We are in the process, we are still the early stages of the process of building the infrastructure within which every human being will have to live for the next probably two, three, four hundred years before some other very disruptive kind of thing happens that has us live in some totally different way. Maybe we're on another planet at that point, who knows? Yeah, whatever that is, right? But, but in the early 1900s, we in the country, a limited to America now in the country, built the system of roads that then determined a lot of life, right? If your city was on the highway system, your city thrived. If it wasn't, it didn't, et cetera. We're building digital highways. And it, so the first sort of thread, first commitment for us is developing really deeply skilled, sought after technologists that proceed from a humane perspective. And we don't mean HR, human kind of, I like people. People are our most important asset. No, humane means you are grounded. Exactly what we started our conversation, you're grounded in your identity, whatever that is. You're okay. Whatever you are, however you are, whoever you are, why am I, you're okay. And you're somebody around whom others are okay. I found in the corporate world that if we can help a human being get to those two things, I'm okay. And I'm around, I'm somebody around whom others are okay. However, they are, they're okay. Those two simple things, we can have magically their work becomes less destructive and more generative. So first, first commitment for us in answering your mission, developing humane technologies. Second is a longer term perspective. It's part of other work I've done and still continue to do, which is developing educator artists. Our approach to education, again, if you're going to develop if you're going to develop technical experts, you're, you need to be an engineer of education. You need to have the kind of right formula, the right skill set, the right, and it's all good. It's useful. It's critical. But if you're going to develop human beings or more accurately help human beings develop themselves, right? And so if you're going to do the humane part of humane technologists, that's artist work. That is how you develop. That is how you develop artists. And a longer term commitment for us is hiring and developing people on long arcs. Students we have for a year, two years, maybe three but educators all have for decades is the kind of intention. And I've got practitioners we've developed that are with us for decades at this point. And so that's what that second thought is to develop as many educator artists are, as are up for hanging out and playing with us and spreading that approach. And then the third commitment slash mission is to be one of the highs in the field. We are really good at convening. We are really, we treat convening as a sort of sacred thing convening community, convening, and that there are lots of really committed, gifted, humble, 
effective people out there doing work in little pockets. And we find that we are really, whatever it is, skilled at, gifted at. And so therefore we take it as a commitment and, a, and an accountability to be the hive that all these bees can come back to. They've got their own thing they're working on. So maybe the hive isn't a perfect metaphor, but but we are a place that those smaller, or even in some cases, in some of our partners, larger nonprofits and even for-profits can come to for a certain kind of belonging and ontological safety that they don't find in their day-to-day work. All such valuable bits of information within this answer, because actually what you're doing is so multifaceted. It's educational, but it's also all this follow-up support. And I love this Mm. humanity aspect to it. As you've answered some of these questions so far, you touched upon your background. I'd love for you just to share a bit more about about that career journey and what got you to what your role is right now. You know, I, I used to jokingly introduce myself to my grad. I, I've, I've been on a graduate psychology faculty for you know, 20, 25 years. And I used to introduce my, myself to students and say, yeah, my name is A.M. I'm a recovering thinkaholic. It's been 18 days since my last gross intellectualization. I got born with what I consider a, a disability, which is a deep level of cognitive intelligence. And in this society, that actually can be a disability because you're led to believe that that a, that's superior, and B, that you should lead from it. It's as if 700 years ago, if you were born with a great level of physical capability, just by fluke, you were six, seven, just naturally muscular, you'd be encouraged to, to say, oh, cool, yeah, that makes you better than others, and therefore you should be in charge, or you should be, right? We've done that with cognitive intelligence, like physical intelligence and physical ability. Cognitive intelligence is wonderful. If you lead from it, it's a nightmare. And so I say that to tell you about my career journey. So I got tagged early on as quote unquote gifted. I, I was supposed to go study physics at Rensselaer. And like, I had no interest. I was interested in these human things. And I had a little meltdown right before heading off to college and shifted majors to Chinese philosophy and world music. And then graduated in 1989. They, there weren't a lot of jobs in Chinese philosophy and world music bachelor's degree. And so I'd, I'd written a little piece of software for a side project I had for actually a music recording project with a buddy. And I found somebody who wanted to buy that. And they paid me 30 grand as a, or they paid up 30 grand as a, as a you know, as a 20 year old. And, and then they invited me in to come and work in the company. I'm like, yeah, I got nothing else to do, sure. And, and that's literally how I started business. And what I saw early on was that if you, what I just said earlier about the humane part, that if you were okay with yourself, if you were comfortable in your own skin, regardless of the context, and if you could engage with other people effectively, and this is 19, it's 89, 90, this is in a way, it's in a time before we even started talking about a lot of this vulnerability, uh, all this stuff in the workplace, right? And so if you were just engaged that way, you had some kind of voodoo magic in the workplace, you know? And so I accelerated really quickly. I started running a business unit, like by the time I was 24. And that just, so that just, that's how I got into business. And after that, at 25, I started the consulting firm. I'm like, Cool. Like people seem to value creating environments where folks meaningfully get along and meaningfully feel comfortable with themselves in service of something they're trying to accomplish. Great. Let me see if I can get paid to do that while still therefore engaging with the stuff I love, which is the human interaction, human development, philosophical inquiry for a sort of quotidian purpose for a day-to-day application purpose. And so I launched a consulting firm with some partners that one got sold in 2001 launched another one. And then just, that was a boutique. And so I spent like 25 years working with systems, leaders of systems, mainly in tech, pharma, and financial services across Europe, across North America, obviously, a little in Asia on issues that we would now call innovation disruption, 
doing things that are impossible and yet impossible in the sense that they've never been done. And yet there was a commitment to get them done. So that, that's what I did. And one of the many things I noticed was that there was nobody ever in the room in those executive meetings that kind of knew what it was to not have indoor plumbing as a child. There's nobody that knew what it was. They were good people. I had never met the big evil ogre corporate, let's crush everything person. I met humans. I met narcissists and I met compassion and I met scared and I met all that. But they all had a very narrow set of experiences. Even those who had skin colors closer to mine, when I look at their set of experiences that got them to the executive suite, they were fairly homogenous in terms of in terms of socioeconomic and all of this, right? And so about six years ago, I decided to retire from that life and come back home to New Haven, where I landed as an immigrant, as an illegal immigrant with my mother, and start this nonprofit focused on, on those mission elements or commitment elements we talked about earlier. That's the background. I think that a lot of your work, your background, everything that you've just shared with us there, we can link this back to what this conversation is about, and it's around AI. And I want you to share some of your work on how DEI's intentions and AI's realities are at odds. Yeah, I think AI's realities are aligned, perhaps not with DEI's intentions, but but often with the unfortunate impact of DEI working in, in, in corporate spaces. So a few points that, that sort of concern me about AI. And listen, I'm a pragmatist. I am like just, this is happening. It will happen. It will continue to happen. There is no stopping it. There's no point in wasting energy on stopping it. It won't stop. It's not, this is happening. So let's just stop having that debate. It's wasted effort. But what concerns me and what we advocate for in, in whatever relatively little ways we can, and certainly what we advocate for in, with our students and our faculty, speaking opportunities I have, is, is a handful of things. First off is an obvious one that, that is talked about a fair bit, which is how is a piece of AI trained, right? What's the data set? What are the biases, perspectives, backgrounds? Same thing. In that corporate boardroom, in that executive suite, decisions are made. And what is the, how, are, how is that intelligence, right, of those executives? How was that intelligence trained? It was trained on a fairly homogenous set of worldviews and lived experiences. And so, so even with great intention and compassion, that wetware, those brains in that executive suite can only extend so far in terms of creating new realities, creating more inclusive realities, et cetera, right? And so AI is the same thing. How is the AI trained? What pre-existing biases and assumptions is it just reinforced, right? And so that's one that's obvious and it's talked about, and but no less legitimate and important and need to be dealt with. The second thing is that it is trained. We have, the, 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 there's a, a gaming company in Japan that earlier this year, if you heard about this, the CEO retired and the board appointed an AI as the CEO. There's a not a small four-person gaming company. There is a gaming company that has an AI as a CEO because it makes sense, right? All those executive roles are is complex decision-making. There's no magic to them. It's complex decision-making. So you're able to make the best possible decision based on a certain set of data, assumptions, experience, et cetera. And then if things go sideways, you're able to, as we say, pivot and choose a new director. And hey, I can do that better than a human you know, it, it, because it's got a deeper data set, right? But it is trained. It is not educated. We make a big distinction on training and education, right? That it does, people worry about AI having sentience and oh my God, what's going to happen when it's sentient and self-aware. I'll trust it more when it's self-aware. Part of my problem right now is that it's not self-aware, that it's just trained, it's a machine. And, and put decision-making in the hands of machines 
thinking yields machine results. It yields a, a very reliable, predictable outcome, which is not what human existence is. It's not what life is. Life is gray and complex and unreliable and unpredictable. It's actually how life survives is by being nonlinear. You know? So that's the second thing that worries me about AI is the fact that it's not getting sentient quickly enough. <laughs> it has no opportunity to be educated. It only has the opportunity to be better and better trained i.e. become a more and more efficient machine. The third thing that worries me, again, maybe a little obvious, but who has access and when and how? All technologies make wealthy wealthier and then eventually trickle their way down to those without access. Every single technology from computers to the wheel to the printing press, who got their ideas out in early days of printing? It was not the genius surf working in a field who genetically actually was a genius, but did not have the means to capture their work and have it spread by, by Mr. Gutenberg's wonderful new technology. Eventually, you get to a point where every tech bro can spew whatever insane opinion they have out to the world. So eventually it catches up, right? And so the AI, who has access? Right now, ChatGPT, right? GPT-4 is 20 bucks a month if you want a premium subscription and be able to do anything even remotely interesting on it. Well, 20 bucks a month for me, great. We got 10 licenses here. We can, but 20 bucks a month for somebody living in, in my city here in New Haven, making 28,000 a year, that's a choice between light bill and AI. And it just gets exasperated as we move forward. So who can afford it at the individual level, at a corporate level? Who can afford to understand how to use it properly, et cetera, et cetera. Concerns me about AI. It is an insanely powerful tool is an insanely powerful accelerator, more so likely than anything we've seen in the digital era. And the only people who can really leverage it are the people who least need it, right? And then the last thing that concerns me, what roles are impacted and how? You see, one of the scenarios I can see playing out very easily is riffing off of that CEO example. AI could very quickly become the manager class of the uber wealthy. Like we're all working for a set of managers that are basically AI generating a high level of predictability around our outcomes for the benefit of the, the owners of the system, as it were, right? There's a lot of expense in that white collar middle. And most of those jobs, a lot of the most of a great many of those jobs that AI can crush, can absolutely crush. There was like three years ago, a Japanese firm that outsourced its underwriting to a piece of AI three years ago. Three years ago, and underwriting in insurance is a pretty big deal, complex. You need a decade in the thing to really be trusted. AI can do it beautifully because all it is is really complex data sets that you need to be able to get to a decision point on. And so what happens is owners of businesses, I'll hyperbolize it just to make the point, Elon can continue to wipe out a whole cadre of knowledge workers and managers and outsource to, the, to this technology and then leave basically the surf class to do the things that need doing that a piece of software can't do add substance at poverty wages, basically, right? Now, again, I'm hyperbolizing in how I'm saying that, but that's the thing that concerns me is what are the natures of the roles that are going to be eliminated? And you couple that with who has access to the technology. It's a further, this is a, what I'll say as a summary on it. It's a potentially really rapid accelerator of possibly the biggest problem we have on the planet which is wealth inequality.
right? Outside of climate, it's the biggest problem we have, but economic biggest problem we have is wealth inequality and leads to so much else. And AI has the potential to really accelerate that wealth gap. Some super interesting insights that you've just shared with us. I think there's some really standout pieces around just really clearly the difference between trained and educated and us getting that right in our minds, because I think that links links it all to the responsibility or lack thereof. And I wanted to take this question further to fostering ethical decision making. And how do we do that in the age of AI? Oh boy, no reason to expect that we're going to do it any better in the age of AI than we've done in the age prior to AI. Like, oh, how good have we been about ethical decision making? We've got in my little lifetime, I'm not young, but I'm not old. And yet, like I've seen, like I, yeah, I got very excited in the mid nineties around BSR, Business for Social Responsibility and the whole kind of movement, Starbucks and Levi's. And I went out there and I was part and we had the global compact from the UN in the, in the late nineties, early two thousands and, and AA 1000, all these, all of this sustainability stuff. Planet's worse now, polluters are polluting more than they ever have been. So I think another challenge of AI is it becomes a deflection point. It becomes yet another thing to deflect from what the work is. The work is not to make AI ethical. The work is to make our society ethical and then use AI. The work is to change incentive structures. The work is to really focus on wealth gaps. The work is to understand that you can't strip mine talent out of my neighborhoods here, my Fairhaven neighborhood where corporations come in, Facebook comes in and says, oh, let's find the, the two STEM geniuses from this year's senior class and give them the opportunity to come work out in Silicon Valley, further depleting the soil of that neighborhood. It's understanding that people need to be allowed to be, stay where they are so that the soil that they're growing in can be nurtured through the economic benefit they get from working for a Facebook or a Google or a, even a startup or a mid-sized company, right? There, there are all these things we need to address, talk about, form some consensus on in terms of the underlying assumptions about our economy and our lifestyle that will then change how we use everything from AI to highways to everything else, right? But what happens is AI becomes a great way to deflect from that conversation, right? It becomes, what should we do about AI? I don't actually care. Let me, tell me what you're doing about getting these kids. You have school districts got 50, the school district's amazing. The people are committed. We work closely with them. They're genuinely committed to these kids in a way that the, the kind of abstract political structure around them isn't. 50% of kids that come out of New Haven school district, and this is 10 high schools, it's a massive district, 50% of kids, don't have a plan for after high school. Forget about they're not going to college or they don't know what they're doing. They're drifting 50%. We need to understand, we need to just even acknowledge that's where the conversation is and then move to, great, what are the implications for AI? Once again, you asked a simple question and I meandered. How do we make ethical use of AI? I think in the hands of an ethical society, all tools can be ethically applied. In the hands of an unethical society, all tools will be unethically applied no matter what constraints you put in place. Wow, super powerful comments there and a lot for us all to take away and think about. You've really got me thinking about just the whole conversation as if we can, this conversation I started, I I named it as artificial discrimination. Can AI be trusted Mm. with inclusion? And the question itself is flawed because can we be trusted with inclusion? For AI to then, and this this is a brilliant way of getting me thinking and for everybody listening to this, 
you've touched upon the job market. This is my industry. I'm really hearing your thoughts around how you think AI will shape the future of the job market. I think it's inevitable that that anything that, listen again, if you were born three-ish hundred years ago, your ability to convert physical effort into economic value is in great part what determined how well you did, right? Um, that was up through even the early part of the 20th century, your ability to convert physical effort and time and then some skill set into value. So you're a craftsperson, you're, you're even you're working on a seminar, your ability to physically manipulate and you know, generate value. Machines increasingly took that over, physical machines, analog machines increasingly took that over and we moved to knowledge economy, right? And so your ability to take ideas and more importantly, your ability to take data and information and translate it into something that has economic value. That's what almost all professions in the second half of the 20th century and into now are. An accountant and a finance person, even a radiologist, all they're doing is taking data and interpreting it in a way to come to a decision, right? You look at this, you know, that x-ray is a piece of data and they've done an enormous amount of work to be able to look at that, process it and come up with, nope, that's just a shadow. There's no cancer there. Right. And that's how, and that has economic value, the ability to interpret that and, and come up with, a, with a, an idea or a result or opinion has economic value. In that case, it has life value as well. Guess what? Digital technology now is replacing that and AI being the one that's going to have the most transformative effect. And so if you continue to make the ability to deal with things, data, information, et cetera, process them in some way and to generate an opinion, an output, a decision. If your job in any way looks like that, in any remote way, that job is up for grabs in the next decade. And so where do we move to, right? So where we move to is actually, it's an enormous opportunity. Oh, Buckminster Fuller in the 60s, in the 60s said, hey, folks, we can all stop working. We did it. We solved for the thing that human beings for 200,000 years have been trying to figure out. How do we feed, clothe, and house ourselves reliably? 60 years ago, we figured it out. We do a forecast. I can't swear on the podcast, can I? I can. Great. We do a shitty job of actually executing on that. But it's a miracle I've gone this long, not even without swearing. We, but we have, it's such an obvious thing. We have the ability to feed, clothe, and house every person on the planet forever and let's throw in healthcare hurt anything and would a lot what fuller was arguing for then and where i'm going with this is so people should be artists you should create ai makes that now not an option but a necessity if you're going to economic value now is not can you take information process it in a way that has economic value we already see at prompt writer job descriptions that are got big tickets on them, right? And so now can you work with a blank piece of paper, right? All jobs currently are white collar jobs or can you take somebody else's output, raw data, information, et cetera, and do something with it in terms of insight? The edge now is, can you take blank page and generate a really interesting question? But then AI is going to spin off and give you 40 options on, right? It's going to do the work that you used to do. And for pure creatives, artists, photographers, et cetera, AI is great. 
if you are actually a creator and not a manufacturer of images, yeah. If you're a manufacturer of images, you're dead. Like wedding photography industries. But if you're actually creative, i.e., you are sourcing a vision, you're sourcing a perspective, you're sourcing a whatever, AI is a boon because it will help you execute on that in an insanely time-effective way and add a level of execution that you might not have been able to do before. So I think that's that's a very generalized, and again, it's 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 very broad and there's lots of nuance underneath that, right? But very broadly, what I would see over the course of the next generation of workers is the move from physical to cognitive and now cognitive to conceptual, right? Your ability to engage conceptually, to look at the blank piece of paper and ask cool questions that have economic value is where quote unquote, white collar work, the high value work is going to go. And guess who can ask the coolest questions? The outsider, right? The criticality at DEI, the person who can ask, the person who asks the most boring questions is the person who's in the system for 20 years because they're so habituated to the questions of the system. But innovation always comes from the outside. That's the whole point of innovation. It's outside your reality, right? And so the people who can ask the coolest questions are people outside, they're outsiders, they're others, they're quote unquote foreigners, they're the people you find weird are the ones who are going to be able to ask the coolest question. Wow, I've absolutely loved everything that you've said in today's podcast. And that final piece is, it's just really hit at home for me in terms of that diversity of thought, that creation, that innovation, everything that is needed within the financial technology, the fintech space, in in many spaces across many sectors globally, but in particular in the sector that I work in, like that couldn't be more interesting what you're saying now, more compelling for the people that are looking to build their careers here or to hire within this space. I've loved learning from you today. You've got me rethinking this entire topic. And it's not just about data entry that everyone tells me, oh, that's what AI will replace. We've got CEOs as AI, AIs as C, AI as a CEO out there, and probably soon to be many more. So yeah, really interesting conversation. Thank you for joining us on the DEI discussions. Thank you so much for having me.